Welcome to episode 12, a special Halloween episode featuring stories from listeners who were not only brave enough to share various networking horror stories, but their real life ghost stories too. You're going to want to keep the lights on. I absolutely love this time of year. Scary movies, ghost stories, all the things that go bump in the night. I could literally binge watch scary movies, listen to paranormal podcasts, or read creepy novels for hours on end while curled up on the couch in the dark with flickering candles all around. One of my favorite stories is that of how Mary Shelley created Frankenstein while on vacation in Geneva in May of 1819. Mary and her then-lover, soon-to-be-husband Percy Shelley, were vacationing with a friend, Lord Byron, and Lord Byron's physician, John Polidori. The weather during their entire vacation was ghastly, trapping them inside for nearly their entire stay. On one of the nights, as candles flickered, Byron read from a volume of German shutter stories. Upon finishing, he challenged everyone in the room to write a story, a ghost story. Of this, Mary wrote, I busied myself to think of a story, a story to rival those which had excited us to this task, one which would speak to the mysterious fears of our nature and awaken thrilling horror. She then wrote her first words. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. Well, I don't know about you, but I rather think Mary won that challenge that night. There has been a tremendous amount of research into why some people, like me, love being scared, and why some people don't. My husband is in the no thank you not today Satan category, and because of this, I have to watch scary movies all by myself. I even go to the movie theater alone, and now that I think back to the last time I saw a scary movie in a theater, it was Jordan Peele's Us, if you're wondering. Most of the people in the theater were alone. There were very few couples, so maybe this happens in a lot of relationships. According to a study led by Vanderbilt University's David Zald, how much you like being scared possibly stems from the number of autoreceptors you have in your body. These are the molecules that control how much dopamine and other chemicals that your brain releases. When I launch the Neuroscience of Networking series, we're going to learn all about the chemicals in our brain. People with fewer autoreceptors, they may get more dopamine from a scare, leading to an addiction to thrilling situations. As we speak, there are studies going on to determine if there's a genetic link to whether or not you like to be scared. What does all of this have to do with networking? Well, (laughs) just like scary movies, some people like networking and some people would rather spend their time getting a root canal. And networking can be downright scary for some people. That's understandable. There are some frightfully awful networking stories out there. Leading up to this episode, I conducted a survey asking people to share a scary networking experience or a personal ghost or paranormal story. Here's what they shared. I'll start with the scary networking stories first. Lizette said, I'm an introvert. 
And networking events are very scary for me. So I tend to eat more to ease the anxiety. But then I hate eating at networking events because my mouth is full and food might then end up on your shirt and on your cheek or or on another person. So I stay away from food if I'm serious about connecting with people at the event. But then again, now I'm anxious because I'm not eating. I get it. Eating at events is terrifying, which is why I usually eat before I go to them. Anonymous said, there was a time when I was out with my boss who had a truly frightening booger in her nose, and I didn't know how to tell her. So all night, with every hello, with every new introduction, I watched with trepidation as the onlooker spotted the spooky booger. So, you know, this reminds me of a joke that I used to say when I was a little kid. How do you make a tissue dance? I don't know, Julie. How do you make a tissue dance? You put a little boogie in it. Moving on. There were lots of stories about not remembering people's names while at events. And good thing for those folks, I give you all my tips and tricks. Or maybe should I say tricks and treats? No? Too much? Okay, very well. Tips and tricks on how to remember names in Chapter 3 of my book. And I'll also cover it in an upcoming podcast at some point. Norman wrote in and told a story about the time he asked a woman at an event if she was pregnant. She was most definitely not pregnant, he found out. You want to see some scary shit? Mistake someone's fat for a fetus in a public setting. I'm, you'll have nightmares about that shit for the rest of your life. Never, I mean never, assume that a woman is pregnant. Are you ready for some ghost stories? Some are sweet. Some are scary, and some will just make you go, huh. Our first one is from Kate, who wrote, One day I was playing with my two-year-old daughter in the finished basement of our home. The basement has a utility closet, which has some plumbing, but the rest of the space is actually just a cement wall. While we were playing, my daughter walked over to the utility closet, pointed at it, and said, Mama, the little girl is crying in there. Let her out. I was so freaked that I grabbed my daughter and I ran upstairs out of the basement and I have not opened that closet door since. Bloody right she hasn't opened that closet door since. I wouldn't either. Can you imagine every time you open that door thinking that there's a crying girl trapped in there? To be honest though, I'd probably like Google cement penetrating radar just to see if there was a way to see behind that cement wall, make sure there wasn't any funny business behind there. (sighs) A sweet ghost story comes from Christian who wrote, I was 10 years old when both of my grandparents passed away within six weeks of each other. First, my mom's dad in July and then my dad's dad in September. That summer sucked, to say the least. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. The first funeral was somewhat local, but the second was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We, along with many other family members that I had just met, all traveled from around the country to Pittsburgh for my Pop Pops funeral. I love that he calls his grandpa Pop Pops. All of my aunts, uncles, cousins, and my family packed into my mom-mom's house. I'm assuming mom-mom is married to Pop-Pop, for a week while all the adults took care of the affairs. Well, there were only so many bedrooms, and being the youngest, I earned myself a spot on the living room floor to sleep. I had no problem with that except for having to wait for everyone to leave the living room so that I could actually go to sleep. 
The night after the funeral, my family routinely hung out in the living room, had their dessert, and peeled off to bed one by one as they got tired. My dad and mom-mom were the last to leave the living room, leaving me to my makeshift bed. As they left, they didn't turn off the TV. Thanks, Dad. As I laid out my blanket to sleep on in the dim living room, I heard something odd. It wasn't spooky. It was confusing. That's when I realized that the TV channel had changed. It had changed from the local news to the hunting channel, my pop-up's favorite channel. As I looked for the remote to turn off the TV, I see that the remote is lying exactly on my pop-up seat on the couch. I wasn't alone. I love this story because I do think that there is a bit of interstitial space that occurs when a loved one dies, when they aren't fully here and they aren't fully where they're going. A bit of a transition period and sometimes, if we are open to it, they visit us and let us know that they're okay. The next story comes from Kara, who writes, My husband, Sean, is a commercial painting contractor. One of his projects was at a historic bar and restaurant in Charlestown, Massachusetts, which opened in 1780, which was a full eight years before Massachusetts was even incorporated as a state. Paul Revere, you know him, one if by land, two if by sea, the Redcoats are coming, was one of the bar's frequent and most loyal customers. The night Sean was working, all the patrons had left and the bar was closed, so he locked the doors and set up his equipment. He went to turn on the radio, and when he looked up, there was a person walking through the bar in what appeared to be a black cloak. Sean, who was now very confused as to how someone was able to enter the building when all of the doors were locked, said to the man, Excuse me, sir, the bar is closed. The man turned, looked at him, then continued walking and then disappeared into thin air. Sean wasted no time running out of that bar, leaving his equipment behind as he raced home. Well, you know, if you're stuck anywhere for eternity, it might as well be a bar. You got good drinks, friendly conversation you can eavesdrop into, maybe a bit of music. Not a bad spot, if you ask me. But I would have run out too. Sean, I'm right with you. I would have run out too. The next story comes to us from Bill. Bill mentioned a story that his friends had told him. They had purchased a house, the oldest house on their block, at the ripe old age of 128 years old. There had been rumors that the house was haunted, but rumors always abound around old homes with a lot of history. While the couple was living in the home, they had two children. This is when they started to experience and notice things in the house. One particular night, the father was giving his son a bath. His wife wasn't home at the time. Before bath time, he went into his son's room and removed all of the stuffed animals from his son's crib. When he returned to put his son to bed after his bath, all of the stuffed animals were back in the crib. He couldn't explain it as him and his son were the only two people in the home at the time. A little while after this incident, the father decided to paint the interior of the house. He's a handyman of sorts, so he decided to do the job on his own. What he discovered as he went through the house was that above each and every doorway, leading from one room to another, there were crosses painted on the wall. That's fucking freaky. 
Okay. The couple never mentioned to the children that the house was haunted, and they didn't speak to others of it either. So they were surprised when, in the middle of the night one night, they were ripped from sleep by their son screaming that there was a ghost in his room. It was after this that the mother, at her wits end and furious with an unseen force terrorizing her child, screamed out, Leave my son alone! He has done nothing to you! Since she ordered this, there have been no more occurrences in the house. Well... Let's just hope if you ever buy an old house with crosses painted all over the walls and stuffed animals that moved all around on their own, all you have to do is yell, oh, okay, ghosts, fuck off, leave my kids alone, and that just does the trick for you. Let's just hope that works for you. Put that one in your back pocket. I don't know if it's going to work, but anyways. (laughs) The next story comes from Lauren, and she titled it, She Just Wanted to Be Friends. Already sounds spooky, doesn't it? She writes, after Christmas 2004, myself and five of my girlfriends took an epic trip to Thailand for two weeks. Good for you, ladies. I have so many stories from this trip, like when we were in Bangkok for New Year's Eve and there was a terrorist bombing, or when we did an overnight hike in the jungle and our opium-addicted guide left us with the deaf Sherpa that can only communicate through a series of nods. How was that hike? Anyway, we still had an amazing trip despite all the mishaps and somehow we all stayed alive and we all remained friends. The last leg of our trip was a stay in a beautiful villa, compliments of my friend Katie's parents who loaned us their timeshare. It was a serious upgrade from the previous accommodations in which we had to shower over the toilet. I stayed in the master bedroom and shared the king-size bed with Katie. We felt like queens. The other four girls had to share one smaller bedroom and a pull-out couch. Jesus, it sucks to be those girls, huh? How do you get in the bed with Katie? I want to know that. On the second night, I woke up to find a third person in the bed with me and Katie. All I remember is seeing her curly hair. Out of the six of us girls, only one had curly hair, and that was Kim. I woke up a few times the night thinking it was weird that Kim was in our bed, but thought Maybe being in a new place, she'd gotten lost after going to the bathroom or something. Every time I tried to get a closer look at her face, it was it was blurry. I have terrible vision and I didn't have my glasses on, so I figured I, I, I just couldn't make out her face because of my bad vision. The next morning, the girl in the bed was gone. Katie rolled over and said, who was in our bed last night? Was it Kim? When we all got together for breakfast, we asked Kim why she was in our bed. She said she never got in her bed. She was adamant and refused to admit that she had slept in our bed the night before. We teased her a bit and just thought she was too embarrassed to admit it. But the person sharing the bed with Kim was also adamant that Kim never got out of bed that night. Later that day, while lounging at the pool, Katie brought it up again. But this time she said, you know, what's weird? kept trying to see who was in her bed, but her face was blurry. I almost pissed myself. We both recounted our experiences in detail and could not figure out why neither of us could see her face, despite being mere inches from her. We both had the feeling like we were in a dream, but how could we have both had the same dream? Obviously, we could not stop talking about this during the remainder of our trip, but we could not do much in terms of research since it was 2005 and there was no Wi-Fi where we were. We were aware that there had been a tsunami in the area the year prior, but didn't know much about the fatalities at the particular resort that we were staying at. 
turns out there were numerous fatalities in the area and we were there exactly one year after the tragedy had occurred. We all came to the conclusion that the sleeping curly-haired woman in our bed must have died in the tsunami. And she just wanted to hang out, thinking perhaps there were already six of us, so we wouldn't notice if there was another person in the suite. In the time since this has happened, we've done some additional research and discovered stories of cab drivers in the area, picking up a woman and then looking back during the drive to find she is no longer there. Shit. You know, I don't mind, like, if you're, like, a ghost in a house, like, fine. But, like, don't get in my bed. Like, that's over the line, if you ask me. Okay. Next story comes from my namesake, my Aunt Julie. She recalls her own ghost story for us writing. In 1825, Louisa Balk Savary moved into the grand home her husband built in Groveland, Massachusetts. She lived there until her death in 1887. Over the next century, there were tales of odd happenings and unexplained events in the house. Some people believe Louisa never left. A group of us, friends and family, met on Tuesday evenings to kibitz and do artsy craftsy things. On one particular evening, we were sitting around Doris's dining table, Doris now lived in the Savory house, when crash! Instinctively, I looked towards the door leading to the hall in the front parlor across the way. As I looked, a silvery-gray shadow quickly moved from left to right, just beyond the doorway. What was that, I thought. We all got up to investigate the crash, and when Doris got to the parlor, she cried out, Oh, no! Noticing that Louisa's daughter's portrait had fallen from the wall. It had hung there since before Doris and her husband, a direct descendant of Louisa, had moved into the home decades earlier. A few days later, I told my mother, who was there that night but happened to have her back to the door, about the strange apparition I had seen. (gasps) She gasped. My Aunt Zell, my mother's sister, who had sat next to me at the table that night, had called my mother the very next day and told her about looking up at the sound of the crash and seeing a silvery gray shadow move from left to right across the doorway. Was it Louisa? rushing from the kitchen to the parlor to prevent her daughter's portrait from falling off the wall and smashing to the floor? We don't know. This isn't the only story I've heard about the old Savory home. You see, after Doris moved out of the home, my Aunt Julie rented it from her and lived there for a while. I've even visited the home. I was too young at the time to understand the history of the home, but my aunt has many stories about Louisa from her time living there. It's not a stretch to say that in the old Savory home, you're never alone. Now, it wouldn't be fair if I read a number of listeners' ghost stories and I didn't share a story of my own. I actually have a few stories. I'm not going to share them all here. Um, I got to keep some for the next Halloween episode. But the story that I'm going to share, it isn't a ghost story. It's more of a thing that I can't explain. It was 1997. I was a junior in college and I had just gone through a terrible breakup. I'd been with this person for three years and he left me for someone else, rather unceremoniously too, and I was heartbroken. On one of my breaks home from college, my mother gave me a gift certificate to one of the tea rooms in Salem. For the listeners who may not know, Salem, Massachusetts is famous for the Salem Witch Trials, which were a series of hearings and prosecutions of people accused of witchcraft in February 1692 and May 1693. More than 200 people were accused, 30 were found guilty, 
19 of whom were executed by hanging, 14 women and five men. In the years that have passed, much of the city's cultural identity reflects its history of witches. The police cars are adorned with witch logos. A public elementary school is known as Witchcraft Heights. And the Salem High School athletic teams are named the Witches. With this has also come the proliferation of psychics, palm readers, aura readers, and more of the like. I hadn't been to a tarot card reader before, so I didn't know what to expect, but I also didn't expect much, if you know what I mean. At the end of my reading, which I don't honestly remember, the tarot card reader asked me if I had any questions for her, and I told her yes. I just wanted to know if me and said ex-boyfriend were going to get back together. She looked me dead in the eye and said, no, you will never be with him again. I was crestfallen, as you might imagine a young college-age girl would be. It was at this point that she looked at me and said, no, you'll never be with him again, but I know who you are going to be with. I know who you are going to marry. I can see him. He's tall, thin. He has dark brown hair, and he wears glasses. I see him clearly. I see him as if he was standing beside you right now. (laughs) Nice parlor trick, lady. Thanks for the reading. I'll be going now. And maybe on my way home, I'll call Dion Warnick and the Psychic Friends Network just to get a second opinion on the vision of my future husband that you just gave me. You know, I left. I never gave it another thought. That was until May of 2002, the night that Chris asked me to marry him. As he got down on one knee and proposed, I looked at him and remembered her words. Your husband will be tall and thin with dark hair and glasses. I see him as clearly as if he was standing beside you right now. And now that same man that she saw was kneeling before me asking me to be his wife. I had honestly forgotten all about that night and that woman and her vision until that very moment. While I was recording these stories, I was sipping on a Halloween-themed red wine that I picked up at Trader Joe's for a whopping $7.99. I purchased this wine specifically for this episode because of its bottle, which is adorned with a Mexican Day of the Dead skull painted in red. The wine is called (laughs) Dearly Beloved I.V. Red. I love it. This wine is a bit of a Frankenstein, cobbled together with bits and pieces of a number of varietals, all from the central coast of California, including Merlot, Zinfandel, Petite Syrah, Syrah, and Cab Franc. I mean, we are going to get into Cab Franc in a later podcast because I love Cab Franc and it gets absolutely no love from anybody else. This wine is drinkable and enjoyable. If you know someone who doesn't drink red wine because maybe it's too harsh, this would actually be a good first one for them to try. It's just easy to drink. You're not going to spend time writing tasting notes on this wine. There's no barnyard or sheep's butt or all the things the French tell us has to be in our wine. Now, don't get me wrong. I love me a wine with a hefty dose of barnyard and sheep's ass. (laughs) But it's not for everyone and certainly not for those just dipping their toe into the world of red wine for the first time. But beware, just like a figure lurking in the shadows, this wine will creep up on you. It's got 14.5% ABV. That'll get you shit-faced. So beware. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I so enjoyed receiving your stories and telling them here on the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing them with me. If you have a story, I want to hear it. 
send me an email. My email's in the show notes. I can't wait to hear from you. And if you like this episode and the other episodes, please don't forget to subscribe and review. I appreciate you listening. Cheers. Mm-hmm.